welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Anne Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Tuscaloosa. And today we are discussing the time that an eminent poet and historian and fairly mediocre politician was assassinated in Rykoke, Iceland in 1241. Snorri Sturluson was assassinated. And this was very bad. And 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 Michelle's going to explain all about this. And, it was, and, and as we were noting, this is our second writer who gets assassinated, uh, Kit Marlowe, having been the first one. Uh, we have another a writer who's kind of like this, but he manages to survive. That's Thomas Mallory. But today we're on Snorri <laughs> Strelson. We're going back into Iceland. Yay. But first we need to do the correction. Oh, oh, oh I forgot. Yes. Michelle has an announcement. We had a, an astute listener, write, Abby, write in to let us know that I have erroneously assumed that the room named at the Florida University for an Eleanor Searle was our Eleanor Searle, the eminent Anglo-Norman historian who did all the things that I was citing, um, I think, in the episode about Battle Abbey. But I'm sure her work will come up again because she's um, got all this stuff. Anyway, so it turns out that there is a different Eleanor Searle that that room is named for. And it is named for her on account of having studied music there and then married well. Okay. So she wasn't a scholar, but she had studied there. Yeah. She was married first to Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney. Oh, my God. The Vanderbilt is kind of a clue that something big is going on. Yeah. And then um, Leonard Franklin McCollum. She's got a she's got a Wikipedia page and that is, she is who she is, who that room is named for, <laughs> which explains for me. I did sort of wonder why on earth is there a room named for her in Florida? No, right. That's, that's not what's going on. I remember you're saying that. This is sort of making no sense. Like, what the hell? But oh, it yeah. it's kind of an unusual name, so it never occurred to me it might be a diff- totally different human being. Well, thank you. Thank you, astute listener. Yeah, who was this? Abby. Abby. Thank you, astute listener, Abby. Mm. Kudos to you. Yay. Yes, I, I definitely appreciated having her write in and let me know this because... Yeah. I, I would rather honestly know that I had made a mistake than to have somebody think, oh, well, I won't tell them it'll hurt their feelings. No, it won't hurt my feelings. Let me know. We, we, we kind of actually like to know what's happening. I'm strongly in favor of facts. <laughs> yes, we are in favor of facts and logic and evidence. Yes, that's what we stand for. We, are, we stand for many things. No genocide, no colonialism. Please use facts and evidence. That's where we're at. Yep. And apparently one of the lessons is marry well if you want to have a room named for you rather than just being an awesome scholar. Although she does have that postdoctoral, the, the, the scholar um, Eleanor Searle has that postdoctoral fellowship named for her. That really is named okay, for that her. That is because... good. All right. So that's good. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was sort of random because that one's at a university in California where she, where she, where she worked at. What the hell is this one in Florida? It's good to know. Two different people. I'm glad to have that cleared up. Thank you. But this is the sort of thing that leads to mistakes on ancestry and genie and oh 
yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. I must be related to this person because they have the same name. So Snorri. Snorri. Now we can go to Snorri. We can go to Snorri. Snorri Sturluson was born in Iceland in 1179. Um, He was an Icelandic poet of great importance and historian of great importance. His works... As his works, at least we be, we believe, what we believe to be his works, um, such as the Prose Edda, which is extremely important source for Norse mythology, and the Helmskringla, which is a history of the Norse kings. They've been integral parts of the construction of Norse history and mythology. I believe Michelle's going to be talking about that later. Yeah, that's what I looked at. Though the assessment of his works changed with times and politics, you know, they're crucial works nonetheless. From a piece of history where documentation can be kind of scant on the ground. So that's great. He's, he's great. All right. So, so how did this poet and historian end up getting assassinated in his own home on orders of the king of Norway? Honest to God, that is the reason why I put it on the list because I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to explain this. Although I think you found out while you were doing your research. <laughs> oh, I, I actually ran across this um, when we were doing the Olaf episode. Mm. Yes, Because right. one of the sources for Olaf is Snorri's section about Olaf in the Helmskringla. Uh-huh. And it mentioned at that point, you know, Snorri was assassinated in 1241. Wait, what? And you're like, wait, wait. Yes. Yeah. I was glad you know about it, too. Because I, I know Snorri through his works, but not so much through the politics. So I was glad to... You know, get the politics down. He was also a politician. That's the context. Oh, so sorry. Snorri was really well educated. Uh, this was the result of a lawsuit settlement whereby Snorri's father was being compensated for having been wounded by the wife of a guy that he was in a lawsuit with. So it's sort of a lawsuit from a lawsuit, settle a settlement from a settlement. And at any rate, Snorri got educated. He became a lawyer. Uh, it's not just that he, you know, could like write history and poems. He was a lawyer and he married well. I think this was a theme earlier in this particular (laughs) podcast. He married well, a a woman who brought uh, lands and power into the marriage. So uh, so he was a poet and a lawyer and a historian, and he went into public office. He was uh, one of the lawgivers in the Althing. It's the gathering where they all come together and a third of the law has to be recited at every Althing. Because that's how you remember it. But yeah, because not everybody got all the education and was writing. Yeah, so he's one of the he's one of the lawgivers there. Yeah, and he's put in public office. And he got invited to Norway, where which is where he met the king. That's um, Hakon Hakonarson. And uh, they, he made him into a knight. He became a Norwegian knight, and he became. <laughs> I didn't know that part. <laughs> Yeah, but you knew he was made. He he. I knew that he'd gone to Norway and and made friends with the king and the king's you know advisor and yeah all that stuff. But I didn't know about him being made a knight. That's hilarious. Well, not just that, but also he's a vassal of the king now. He's yeah. So he's a he's an Icelandic lawgiver and he's a vassal of the king of Norway. Let's think about this. Could this be a problem? Mm, Let's find Mm. out. (laughs) <laughs> conflict of interest perhaps yeah conflict. so he went back to iceland and he became um, a law speaker in the athling again so he's one of the people that speaks out the law that you have to do you know a third of because he can read it okay fair enough he became a law speaker in the all thing again and he uh and he and he worked he was pushing for the union of iceland and norway 
okay, we got to go back to some further context because, like, what the hell? Iceland was settled first in the ni- in the ninth century by Norwegians, uh, and it was governed by the Althing, like from almost the very beginning. And that's still one of the oldest parliaments in the world because it's not gone. Mm. So it was independent, though, it, of course, it had ties with Norway. And the Althing had been established on purpose as a way of avoiding the kind of centralized authority um, of the monarchy, which was what Norway had, but also keeping the Norwegian kind of structure of laws. So you could have them both by having a kind of communal structure. This is a commonwealth. And the commonwealth worked really well for a while. Hmm. Like during all that time where we've got the Irish kings killing each other and the Welsh kings killing each other and the, you know, the English king killing each other, the Commonwealth was working pretty well. Uh, up till the, ni- the 13th century, when the chieftains, uh, there had been about 40 of, nearly 40 of them at that point, and they'd been working communally, it metamorphosed, they became a smaller group of people fighting for power. Uh, you know, like the Irish kings fighting for and the Welsh kings, that, that's what they became. Well, when did all that start? It started. Snorri! It started with Snorri. It started in 1220 when Snorri Sturluson became a vassal of the king of Norway and said that, he, and he told the king that he would help Norway become the boss of Iceland. That's the beginning of the Sturlung um, era. There are about 43 years where the Icelandic chieftains were fighting. It's Snorri. Let's have a little moment where we're really sad that sometimes poets do not stay in their own lane. <laughs> you got anything there? <laughs> that you, that I'm you just know. so frustrated. <laughs> I know. I know. What are you doing? Oh, Snorri. No, no. Don't break it. It's working. It, it was working and then it stopped working. Yeah kind of spectacularly. After Snorri had gone to Norway and come back, his nephew Sturla also became a vassal of the king of Norway. So that's the, this is the Sturluson era. This is, this is the family that, you know, tries, that brings in Norway and. (sighs) Oh, so, oh, 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 I hadn't thought about this connection with Dermot before, but that it's like Dermot bringing in the Normans. It kind of is. I hadn't thought about that either. Well, I will say, and I don't think it's just um, because of my ties to Norway, I will say that I I think that probably the Norwegians were better behaved than the Normans. I'm just saying. That's a low bar. Okay, it's a low bar, but I'm saying nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Sturl is a vassal of the King of Norway, and he went to war with the Icelandic chieftains who didn't want to be Norwegian. Okay. So um, Sturla lost a really big battle at um, Orlistater, a really big battle. In fact, he died is one of the things that happened. And Snorri was back in Norway. The king no longer trusted him. And after that battle, at which Snorri had lost like brother, nephews, all these, all these relatives killed, the king denied Snorri permission to go back to Iceland. I mean, absolute, you may not go back. Uh, but the regent, uh, who was also a friend of Snorri's, got him out. And the Sturling saga says that Snorri, that Snorri said, Ut vilek, I want out. And he went home. The Norwegian king had to fight the regent for a while, um, the regent having behaved very badly in allowing Snorri to go back to Iceland. 
But the regent got killed in 1240, and the king sent then sent agents to Gisor. Now, I haven't mentioned Gisor, but he's the guy that won the battle that Snorri's nephew lost. He sent agents to Gisor with orders to neutralize Snorri. Death or capture, either one. But And that would, of course, mean submitting to Norway, even though there had been this whole big fight and the battle that Gisor won. Let's take a moment while we try to make sense of this in our heads. Okay, that didn't work. Let's move on. So Gisor Gisor chose to assassinate Snorri. By the way, I, I have to mention this. Snorri had been sent a letter warning him about this, but it was in runes and Snorri could not read it. But we think that Snorri could read, read runes. And so we think this was some f- form of cryptic rune that he couldn't read, but that the person who sent it thought he could read. And I do not know how to explain this because um, I know the Futhark, but I do not know cryptic runes. I don't know what the hell they might be. At any rate, he was warned, but it wasn't a very good warning, was it? No. At any rate, Gisor took about 70 men. I find this hilarious. <laughs> how big a force do you need to go to somebody's house and kill them in the basement? I mean, this happens all the time in America without 70 people. I'm just saying. Any rate, he takes 70. And uh, he attacks Snorri in his house at um, Reykholt. That There's pieces of the ha- Did you do... Are you going to say anything about tourism? I can, yeah. Okay, because yeah, you can go visit this place. At any rate, so that was sep- September 22nd, 1241. They chased a Snorri into the cellar and they killed him. And his last words, I'm sorry to tell you, were do not strike, but they did. So that was bad and nobody really was happy about it uh, because the great poet and historian and mediocre politician was dead. And the king of Norway continued to take on the Icelandic chieftains and there were more battles. And Snorri's brother, Thorthur, won several battles. And he and Gisor, both being vassals of the king of Norway, did not fight each other. No, no. Because Gisor became a vassal of the king of Norway after he had killed Snorri's other brother, who was being a vassal of the king of Norway. Um, anyway, now he's a vassal of the king of Norway, and so they're not fighting it at any rate. The king of Norway named Thorthar the ruler of Iceland. <sighs> a little rest here for a minute. Okay. And finally, in 1262, the the Icelandic chieftains signed a covenant which brought Iceland into union with Norway, meaning that they that they moved from a chieftain-led commonwealth to a monarchy. And then, by the way, I'm going to go a little further and explain what happens later. Later in 1380, this led to union with Denmark because Norway, Denmark, and Sweden were all united in the Kalmar Union. This had to do with the royal families of those countries marrying each other because they were trying to counteract the Hanseatic League, which had gotten awfully high and mighty for a trade union. And so that's, you know, that's all later. Uh, But Norway, by the way, would remain in union with Denmark until 1814, at which point Denmark ceded Norway to Sweden because Denmark was on the wrong side in the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> that didn't go very well for them. So Norway went to war with Sweden, but Sweden won. But in 1905, Sweden granted independence to Norway, though the problem was that there were no Norwegian noble families who could provide a monarch that descended from medieval times. And so Prince Carl of Denmark, 
who was a distant relative of some of the medieval Norwegian kings, became king of Norway by parliamentary election. And that meant that the queen was the princess of Wales, who was the daughter of Edward VII. I'm just telling you, it's it's hard to follow these things. It's anyway. So Norway was independent. Monarchy again, not a, you know, monarchy again, but, you know, it's with a Danish king. Okay, but the Danish king is now Norwegian. So let's just say, that's just how it goes. And as for Iceland, back to Iceland. Iceland, when we last mentioned them, was in union with Norway and Denmark. When Denmark lost in the Napoleonic Wars, Iceland remained with Denmark while Norway broke loose. So that's 1814. The Icelandic independence movement, along with movements across Europe, started in the 1850s. And in 1874, Denmark granted Iceland home rule and a constitution. And in 1918, the Act of Union made Iceland fully independent, but in a personal union with Denmark, which means that they have the same monarch, but they're in different countries like Canada, for instance, which, Hmm. you know, yeah. And that agreement expired in 1944. And when that agreement expired, Iceland voted. It was 97% of the population voted to end the union. They became a republic. They elected a president. That's where we are today. Okay, back to Snorri. So Snorri was dead and um, things were in chaos and everything evolved as I've laid out. But his legacy has been literary, historical, political. It's, you know, he's all of the realms that he was working in, he made a big impact on. And I finished my section before we move on to uh, Michelle with a quote from Snorri's prose edda, which seems to me kind of useful. I don't know. Here it is. Men will know misery. Adulteries be multiplied, an axe age, a sword age, shields will be broken, a wind age, a wolf age, before the world's ruin. Hmm. Yeah. So that, so yeah. So tell me what you got. You wanted to talk about, you want to talk about all the writings, yeah? I do. Um, I want to try to explain why Snorri is so important. Yay. Pleased to do so. So he was, this is a direct quote from one of the books I'm working with. Snorri was the first Icelandic prose writer whose background is known who was not a cleric. Oh, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that at all. Though his ecclesiastical predecessors had been by no means uninterested in secular learning, and he and his lay contemporaries were deeply imbued with Christian learning. But his outlook, though Christian, was predominantly secular. He seems to have belonged to a group of writers with interests in poetry and history, although there's no evidence that he presided over a school of poets and scholars. So even if his writing was bad, he would be really important as the first known Icelandic prose writer who is a secular person, not a, not a cleric. Interesting. The prose edda has three pieces. One is a poem of praise to that Norwegian king that he wrote 
when he first went there. The other two, the Giflaginning, is the piece that has all the mythology in it. It has a framing narrative. A Swedish king, Gifli, has some questions. So he goes to Asgard to get some answers. He particularly has some questions because he feels like he's been badly treated in the world. He has some land that's been taken from him, and he wants answers from the gods. Wow. Lovely. That just because we have to mention Tolkien at every opportunity, is a really interesting piece of information for anybody who has read the history of Middle Earth because the original versions of the Silmarillion have exactly that kind of framing narrative. Well, Tolkien knows Snorri. Oh yeah, for sure. He knows him very well, as well as the, um, the poetic Edda. All of the names, of course, of the dwarves and Gandalf come from... Yes. The yes. poetic Edda. We get a description of the mythology, the set of gods that the Scandinavian pagans believed in. This is one of only two sources. So it's incredibly important. Without Snorri, the knowledge of... I mean, our, our, our knowledge of Norse mythology is is always carries that asterisk of this is being written down in the 13th century about things that people were believing in the 9th and 10th and 11th centuries. So we have that 200 years and it's also being written down by somebody who is a convert to Christianity. So his framing, uh, his discussion of the, the gods takes the stance that these were people who have become treated as gods. And interestingly, they're people who are descendants of survivors of the Trojan War, which oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is utterly, what is it with the Trojan War? Because we see that same exact thing at the beginning of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm -hmm. Yep. That yep, yep. that that Britain was was is called that because it was settled by Brutus and his descendants. Not Rome, no. It's no, Troy. It's Troy. Why? What is the thing with Troy? Somebody tell me what the book is to explain what the thing is with Troy. But it's so this is a really important source for the mythology. It has these pieces to it that make it acceptable to both the the, you know, the Christian who is re writing it and the Christian who is reading it, but the actual information itself appears to be preserved fairly well. Right. So that piece by itself, if that was all we had, he would be an important writer. But wait, there's more. The third piece of the prose Edda, the um, Skaldas Kaparmal, is a writer's guidebook. It's so important uh, for our understanding of how they thought about poetry and how they put poetry together. It is lists of kennings organized by the nouns you would use them as uh, substitutes for. So you would have an, uh, you know, you'd have a listing for boat and underneath it, it would have all the things that you use, all the little compound phrases that you would use as, you know, like wave writer yeah, yeah, yeah. that you would use as substitutes for boat. So he essentially wrote a thesaurus. <laughs> A poetry thesaurus. It's so important because he uses illustrative examples from skaldic poetry, much of which does not survive. So another reason is he's important. He saves some stuff for us. 
yeah, it's not his intention to, to he's not intending to save that skaldic poetry because he doesn't know it's going to get lost. But he, it, it, it's important because of the poetry he is, he's saving there, but also because of what he's telling us. I mean, much of what we know about how the poetry was put together and how they thought about putting this poetry together comes from the fact that he sat down and wrote us a guidebook. So he's the one that tells us all these things we know. Yes. Uh (laughs) He's so important. He's so important. And it's just, it's that we don't get that a whole lot. You know, nobody sat down in 14th century England and said, okay, now I'm going to write you a guide to how we write a literature poetry. That would have been nice, but we don't have it. No, that doesn't exist. No, no, we just have to figure out the, how the alliterative poetry works by reading the alliterative poetry. Yeah, But he sat down and wrote us out the rules, which was nice. I appreciate that. And then, of course, we have the Helms Kringla, which is a really important collection of sagas going from the legendary past to the near past of 1177. It's humongous. I did not attempt to read. No, it's humongous. It's true. All of it. It's so huge. It's so huge. It really is covering a lot of territory, to be sure. I spent an awful lot of time trying to find something that I thought should exist, but doesn't. Uh Uh-huh. There is no historical novel about Snorri, as far as I can tell. Not even in Norwegian or something. I mean, I dug all through the internet and what the heck fascinating childhood connection with important people murdered in his home incredibly important author what more do you want hollywood what do you want plus at least two marriages that i remember and a great many illegitimate children so really there was a you could have a lot of romance he has such an interesting life why is there no biopic why is there no novel why is there no movie come on get on it hollywood yeah you would think and especially since we've got all that whole viking trend and everything you'd think that really people could do this for us he's he's often compared to the beowulf poet because of being a christian writer who is then retelling the pagan past Uh but Personally, I think a better comparison is Thomas Mallory. Uh-huh. Because he is very he's like he reminds me of Thomas Mallory because he is close enough to this past to still understand it, but far enough away from it to understand that it needs to be preserved and retold and repackaged for the people who currently exist and the ones that are going to follow. He's at this really crucial cultural moment. Well, 100 years before is too early, 100 years later is too late. But it's as if Thomas Mallory had written, in addition to Mort Artur, a synopsis of the Bible and also a writer's handbook. I would like to see a writer's handbook from Thomas Mallory. I think that would be fun. <laughs> what exactly the hell are you doing, Thomas? How are you making sense of these things that do not fit together? It's uh, I I am now quite impressed with Thomas Mallory, at least having not been murdered. Yes, he didn't get murdered. Because his political sense is atrocious. Yes, pretty much as bad as Kit Marlowe's and Snorri's. He did spend a lot of time in jail and specifically excluded. So, you know, maybe the person sent after Snorri was just being 
overzealous and could have taken him back in chains and Snorri would have died in prison. But that's not what he did. And there, there is delightful Snorri-based tourism. Do tell. So we can go see his house, right? Y- you can go. There's whole itineraries set up where you can go see it. I just now ran across that there is an app. Yay! There is an, a Snorri app. What happens with Snorri apps? So let me go back over here. This is... This is a tour as a tourism blog. Locify, that's the, the travel blog. Uh-huh. Locify has been working closely with Joanna e- uh, Eric's daughter, product manager at Snorastafa, the place, over the last year and is proud to release the much to announce the release of the much anticipated Snorri app on Android and iOS. The Snorri app provides guests to the Reichholt region, a digital tour guide, and tells the stories of one of Iceland's most historic figures, Snorri Sturluson, and his hometown of Reichholt. The app was released just in time for the Follow the Vikings conference, (laughs) which um, Snorra Staffa has been taking part in a four-year-long EU-funded project aimed at making the transactional Viking heritage accessible and understandable to a worldwide audience. So let me go over to my phone, actually, and see if I can find the Snorri app. I literally found this while we were chatting. <laughs> I was I was pulling the websites back up. It is the Snorri app from this, from this, it's called Snorri. It's from Locatify. Look, look, look at, look at Fi. It's one of these little portmanteau words. And it is an educational map. It is an educational app. It says it's for the Story Snorlson Museum, the politician and poet. And then it tells you all about the guide, how you have the option of walking around. It'll give you the, the guide to it. Ah, oh, how exciting. This is so cool. Snorri has his own app and... I'm delighted to report he has an author page on Penguin because they have published pieces of both the Edda and Helmskringla. So he's got, he has, he has an author app or has an author page on Penguin. Does it tell us how to get in touch with him? Cause you know, <laughs> that would be hilarious. That would be good. <laughs> yep. There it is. There is his, let's see what Penguin thinks. Let me go back over to this. Story Sturlson was the son of an upstart Icelandic chieftain. He rose to become Iceland's richest, richest, and for a time, most powerful leader. Yeah, was he a powerful leader? And then they list the books by him that they have published. He can be reached. (laughs) You can send him (laughs) fan mail. Then they have, they have, you know, because it's a standard, it's a standard page, right, for all of their authors that they just use the same template. So under this, it says, sign me up for news about Snorri Sturlson and more from Penguin Random House in case he has new releases. Yeah, I totally want to read his new releases. I really do. I really, really do. What is left of his house, by the way? I mean, clearly, I mean, it's, there's not like an entire thing. Sure doesn't look like it. There's a, there is a... The picture mostly is of a hot spring. You will find the famous Snorralog, Snorri's personal hot tub. It was connected to his home by a tunnel and hooked up to nearby hot springs. Oh, do we get to go in it? Mm, I don't know that you get to go in it, but the aqueduct has survived and so has the pool. That's pretty awesome. 
No. So the hot spring is kind of like a natural, that's a natural thing, but then there's a way to get to it. It is, I'm looking at the picture of it right now. It is a round kind of in the earth tub of water that is fed. It's got an aqueduct that was built okay. uh, under underground um, aqueduct. And oh, okay. that's how it's so there's fed. A, so that's a natural hot springs. And what's built is a way of uh, having a bath. In it. Yep. Okay. Good, good. Very smart. So this sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to go to Iceland. You've been, haven't you? Oh, no. I would like to go to Iceland. Oh, I thought you had been to Iceland. I've been to Sweden. Yeah, when you were talking about the um, the kings uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, I'm I'm looking up to see whether something they told us in Sweden is actually true. Oh, yes. Do look that up. We got told that this king of Norway, that this king of Sweden, sorry, had been, wow, okay, it is actually true. <laughs> oh my, okay, so what is it? What is it? What is it? The story they told us in Sweden was that Sweden, in 1818, the king died and um, was succeeded by the crown prince, but then he was not actually his son. What he was, was a French soldier who was handpicked for them by Napoleon when Sweden wrote to him and said, we are in serious trouble because the king is dying. And also he's not doing great, you know, right now. And we don't have an heir. So what, what on earth are we going to do? And Napoleon's like, I have just the guy for you. So he sends them a French soldier to be their king. And it's the sort of thing where you're like, that sounds totally bogus. That's totally bogus. Yeah. No. So, but apparently it may actually be true. So a French soldier that isn't actually of noble blood, which is usually what you get when you're having a monarch, but some just some guy, well, some guy from the ranks. What was he a private? Was he, was he an officer? He should be an officer, I would think. I am looking right now at realscandinavia.com because I hadn't looked this up. Um, I, this didn't seem totally relevant to Snorri. But in, in the early 19th century, Sweden had this problem because the king was um, suffering from chronic ill health. He had a stroke soon after his coronation and he was childless. <laughs> There's like several things about this that you don't want in a monarch if you're having a monarchy. Yeah. So they wrote to Napoleon for help because they thought they were going to be in serious trouble, you know, because they've always had they've always had problems with. Um, so what was going on is that rumors were circulating that Russia and Denmark were planning on dividing Sweden between them mm-hmm. as soon, you know, because of the the king's weakness. And so they wrote to Napoleon for help, and he sent them John Baptiste Barnadotte, who is, in fact, a commoner. <laughs> what was his rank in the French army? He enlisted as oh, a no. seven- Hold on. As a 17-year-old, he enlisted as a soldier and then rose through the ranks oh, as okay. the All French right. Revolution opened up opportunities for okay. capable men without noble blood. By okay. 1794, he was a general. 
Okay. All right. So he wasn't a noble, but he had actually proven that he had some, you know, mental wherewithal and yeah. could run things. Okay. He he had gained the notice of Napoleon while they were while they were serving together in Italy, and. In uh, 1804, Napoleon had named him as one of his 18 marshals, the highest military rank right. in France. I'm totally right. mostly quoting here from realscandinavia.com. Okay. All right. Um, and so he was, you know, he didn't just go out onto the battlefield and pick some random dude. He sent like one of his most trusted and highest ranking dudes. Okay. All right. Okay. I got the guy for you. How did that go over in Sweden? Were they like, oh, yay, we love our new king. He has such a nice accent. I mean, what was going on with them? Were they like, no, no? Well, no, they were. They seemed like they were pretty happy about it because he, they got sent a capable soldier to keep Russia off their butt. Uh, okay, yeah, that always being an issue, isn't it? Okay, and they, there weren't, it wasn't any NATO yet, so they couldn't do that. All right, okay, got it. And he also had they 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 realized pretty quickly they were in trouble, and so they they wrote for help in eighteen ten, and so he had several years, like seven or eight years there, to serve as regent for the ailing king before and get you know get adopted and deal with all the formalities um before actually taking over but it is it's it's one of those stories where you know we're like touring the the royal palace in sweden and they tell us this you know, like that sounds so spectacularly bogus <laughs> but it turns out it was true <laughs> sometimes the most spectacularly bogus stories are the actual real ones okay but you just said get adopted who adopted him he was formally adopted by the king and his his oh, his wife. Oh, okay. So he was he was their heir because you know yeah, yeah. he was he was, son. He was right, made okay. into their official official heir. Okay, the fine, crown fine. prince. Okay, thank you. All right, so yeah, so Sweden. <laughs> it was clearly a rough time for Scandinavia, the nineteenth century. Well, it was kind of a rough time everywhere, really. Well, that's true. Yeah, everybody had their own flavor of rough timeness. So they they got lucky. Napoleon sent them Napoleon sent them a capable soldier to help them defend themselves. So Denmark did not take them and Russia did not take them. And Russia did not take. Them. I'm actually impressed that Napoleon did that because, you know, he didn't always behave real well. Oh, well, I said said to you that I would say a little something about genealogy. Oh, yeah. And the reason I uh, wanted to say something, the reason this even occurs to me at all, because who cares, is that there are, there are places where genealogy uh, intersects with Snorri problematically, as one might think, because, you know, he has a history and he also does mythology. And the medieval gen genealogies, you know, they're still useful, you know, when, if you're following, if you're interested in gene genealogy and you're following back lines and whatnot and understanding history. Except sometimes that they are fraudulent, uh, which is a problem with genealogies. That goes all down through. I mean, we have we have famous genealogy frauds, you know, going on down. I, it's I don't think it's stopping. I keep running into things. But in the Middle Ages, the genealogies that link medieval people into the Franks, you know, the whole Carolingian thing, they're, they're legion. <laughs> like, no, you made these people up. They didn't exist. And as a general rule, what's going on is that the purpose of, of the medieval genealogies is kind of different from the way people think about genealogy now. 
theoretically, although there's a whole lot of, I'm descended from Charles Maine and Edward II. I mean, there's a whole lot of that going on. But the medieval genealogies were specifically, they would be put together showing how whatever noble family had commissioned them, how that family was related and descended from important personages and the gods and and legendary people it's like that's that was the job and so it sh- they show up still um if you're working on if you're working you know, doing your amateur genealogy and you're working on uh, family websites and stuff you can still find yourself descending from odin for instance i'm because you know obviously obviously the kings of, of the, the the high people of Scandinavia and Norway and Denmark and Sweden, they were all descended from Odin. Uh, and so they go back into the gods. And so Snorri's writing, it is, like it's in the sagas, which are histories, you know, that often gets, uh, we get into discussions all the time about, well, you know, being descended from Odin. So we get all these lineages from across, you know, all around, like, you you know, you're descended from, from King Arthur, uh, or you're descended from a Magog, who's a biblical figure who then got made into the ancestor of the Irish kings, you know, or you're descended from, uh, as as you rightfully noted, the um, the people that managed to escape Troy, even though they don't show up. And the only story we have of Troy is having escaped. But at any rate, there they go. They, they get away and they found lineages in Britain and Ireland and Wales and God knows what all. Uh, or you could be descended from Belimar, the sun god of the Welsh, you know. So, uh, it's, and it can be really sort of difficult going back, figuring out what, what is the line in between mythological figures uh, or deities and actual humans. Uh, in general, you could say, for instance, that if you have a story wherein your ancestor is um, the kind of person, you know, who can jump over, you know, nine people at once and uh kill dogs with his teeth and you know conjure up fairies from um the garden probably this isn't a real human but as you know sometimes stories get attached to real humans it can be quite a problem but at any rate if you are um if you are doing a genealogy and you find out you find out someplace online that you are descended from odin uh you aren't um, and uh, and if the proof came is from Snorri, it's like, yes, in his terms, this is true, but not in ours. Genealogy is so difficult. My mom called me up the other day and asked me if I could find out anything about a John Bishop who emigrated from England. And I'm like, probably not. What time period? That would have been good information. I actually went on to Jeannie. I actually went on to Jeannie and like got back to what she was asking me about. But, you know, what it says is, we don't know. He came from England in 1698. Oh, we have some of those ship records is the deal. And that's why I was was wondering if he knew the time. I just was kind of like the request gave me a headache because it's so, it's too general to be real and also i don't know why we're looking this up because there is a solid 75 percent chance that the ancestor of ours who took on the name stephen douglas bishop was stealing a name from a dead baby okay yeah no 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 what okay how is it why was it what okay all right we're gonna have a little segue here where i find out about the dead baby what are you talking about your ancestor stole a name from a dead baby what the hell so we have my um 
my mom's grandfather called himself Stephen Douglas Bishop. But when my uncles have gone to look for that, all they find is um, a couple of records for infants who died. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And also, we know for sure that this man faked his own death to get away <laughs> from his wife. <laughs> we thought for a long time that he um, he was a singer-sewing salesman, and he, uh, he this was his second marriage, the one that resulted in my grandfather. And he, um, it was believed in the, in the family for a very long time that he died in a inn fire. He was, during one of his travels, the inn caught on fire. But there were reports of hearing carriage in the night. And when my uncle actually started digging into genealogy, he found this rat bastard in Ohio with a new family. <laughs> so the only real question is, did he set the inn on fire? <laughs> or did he take advantage of the situation? There used to be, I think it's gone now, um, but there used to be a genealogical society, uh, something like the, the Black Sheep. <laughs> there was a, like, and you could join it if you could prove that you were descended from someone who was really quite nefarious. You could have been in that. <laughs> he was He was a piece of work. If you look at the pictures of him, um, we just have like one or two, but you can see that his ears are very pointed. Alex is convinced he's a fae. Oh. In which case he had totally different morals than we do. And, and it was, he was being just fine. I mean, the fairies are amoral, not immoral. It's a the, whole the pointed ears have come down. Uh, a bunch of us have them. Not, not as far as I know, nobody has both, but many of us have just one. It's, it's really wild. <laughs> Oh, goodness me. He was a piece of work. We have wild family stories. My grandmother got into a fistfight with her sister-in-law when she was eight months pregnant and won. <laughs> now, and your family tells these stories, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, some families don't. Some families um, don't want you to say any of the bad stories. M one of my great uncles um, told us, he told the whole family that no one was ever allowed to mention that um, my great great grandfather, Andrew Walker, was in prison for murder. He wrote a book about it. So I think <laughs> that that's not a secret, you know. But even if he hadn't written a book about it, I would have talked about it anyway. Because, like, what? Why? Why would I not? What is, any rate, yes. Because it's just history. That's the deal. But people have ideas about what it is that lineage means. And it's often just quite annoying, frankly. Grandma didn't like Aunt Anna because they, Aunt Anna and her brothers had tricked her favorite brother, my grandma's favorite brother, into marrying Aunt Anna. Ah, yes. They had done the little thing where the brothers and the dad were waiting with guns and then they had her pretend like she'd hurt her ankle or something. And so when he bent down the fool to look at her shoe, they came coming in with the guns. <laughs> you've, you've got your hand up her skirt. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And where was this? Iowa. Iowa. Okay. Iowa. And this sounds like what? End of the 19th century? My grandmother was born in 1902. Oh, okay. So no, we're talking 20th century. Carolina. Early 20th. It would be in the 20s. She could remember, my grandmother could remember getting the right to vote 
and was very adamant about like it didn't matter whether she was voting for the dog catcher she, she was she there voted <laughs> she she voted everything she could vote for she voted because <laughs> she she remembered getting it and not having it i like family stories but they um and sometimes they actually they actually are end up being true i mean i've had I've found, there's been stories in my family that i completely didn't believe that turned out to be quite and very true and then sometimes of course they're just like wrong and people are not actually you know descended from george washington or whatever we don't you know as far as i know none of us have delusions of grandeur no you like you like the other stuff you like to go the other way we're just terrible uh, to be to be perfectly honest i do not trust anything genealogical past about the 17th century because you know like you were saying the the reason for keeping the genealogies are different before that so that i i find them very suspect well what i love about all this is the history i love the history of it and you know i like to read stuff but i would say also I don't actually completely trust the genealogies after 1700 because even when there's documentation, I don't know if you know this, I'm sorry to break this to you, Michelle, and to any listeners who might not know this, but occasionally there have been people uh, who were female who gave birth to children whose father was not actually the person they said they were. (laughs) This This is why... This is why, for the old English, your closest male relative was not your father, but your mother's brother. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> the the um, sending in your data to the ancestry sites is creating a really interesting problem now mm. for people who a generation ago thought that they had secrets that they had buried. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't bury them. Not after the <laughs> DNA shows up. No, it's true. <laughs> No, so what I think of, um, I think of all the records as the things that people said, and that probably at the time most people believed. I'm I'm down with that. I can do that. You know, it's it's all history. It's all history. It's not like, it's as close as you can get to evidence, but it's not necessarily fact. Yeah, that's a good point. Just because, just because they say this is who their father is, that does not mean it. And there's you end up with so much confusion with, you know, people being named after, if you've got a nephew who's named after an uncle, then they over time start getting confused with each other. Or you have, you know, younger children being named after dead older ones. Oh my gosh. Um, As you know, uh, I, at least Michelle knows, I don't know if y'all do, but as you know, I spend most of my time over on Jeannie working in the medieval Welsh tree and there's a couple of things going on there that can be quite confusing. One is that often Welsh families would have many children with the same name, all of them alive. Or there are also these, there are lines of cousins with the same names after each other. So yeah, it's like, <laughs> so you can very easily mix the cousins lines up. Oh my God. Plus it's all in Welsh. And so it's a really difficult piece of the tree. Oh no, no, the humans aren't easy. I have no patience. I'm I'm so happy that you want to volunteer your time to do that because I have no patience to do it at all. 
Uh, it's the ADD. It's the ADD because I'm like putting all of uh, Peter Bartram's Welsh genealogy charts into Genie, and it's just simply ADD. I love that stuff. It's like names. Do do do. How are the alluded? Blah, blah 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 blah. Do I think that all of this is incredibly real? Mm, actually, I don't know. But I actually, but I love the little works. It's nice. I like that. And then, you know, I then occasionally have to explain to people that, no, they are not descended from Bonnie Prince Charlie. Or, or I have, like, the argument, like, as they are descended from King John, like, lots of us are, big deal. But um, the problem is, uh, as we know from several podcasts we've done, uh, King John was horrible. He was a horrible man. There might have been something good about him. I don't know what it was. And so, so I had this argument. So, like, no, there's been revisionist history. He's great. I'm like, no, actually, no, there hasn't been. I'm so sorry. Your ancestor was a horrible man. I'm just so sorry to tell you this. But that doesn't mean you're horrible. It's just a piece of history. There was this guy. He was terrible. He had some kids. Then they had kids. And now you're here. It's just... <laughs> At any rate, Odin. No, you're not descended from Odin, so don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. That's Probably not the Trojans either. No, nobody is descended from the Trojans. I'm just saying, you know. Uh, no. Also, here's another terrible piece, piece of things. Not only um, are there these Irish um, manuscripts that explain to you that the Irish are descended from the Trojans and also the Pharaohs, that's in there too. Um, what? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, oh and, and the Bible, biblical, they're also... And biblical figures. But then there's this whole list of Irish high kings who did not exist. Oh man. They weren't there. So, you know, they show up in all the I they show up in all the genealogies too. I'm like, no, I'm so sorry, but you know, before Neil of the Nine Hostages, like we got no evidence. Sorry about that. In fact, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, if you're if you're the Irish are not descended from the Pharaohs or the Trojans or um the biblical people of the middle east they're just not no my favorite piece of this you know place where genealogies have a foot in reality and a foot in mythology is um you know that the the guy who was this the inspiration for the the, the show vikings that was just on where ragnar 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 Lothbrok appears to have maybe existed, but probably not. But weirdly, his children do exist and are attested to. Oh, that just makes my brain hurt. Oh, it's the same thing with Neil of the Nine Hostages. He he was probably historical, but the person who theoretically is his father was not there. We just don't know. And so, so like, of course you have to know. I mean, I've had so many people say, well, we have to, who, we have to know who they're... Of course we know. No, we don't necessarily we don't necessarily know whose people's parents were, you know, even now, not less, much less back then. Yeah, I, I like genealogy, but I don't know why, because it's not for the usual reasons. I'm looking at history. Yeah, but it's like historiography, where what you're doing is um, examining and thinking about the ways in which people think about history over time. I really like looking at the ways in which people think about genealogy over time. From whom are we descended? And what are the stories we are telling ourselves? Because even if you like have a lot of information about your family, you're not telling all the stories. That's thousands and thousands of thousands of people you might know about. You're not telling all their stories. First of all, because some of them, most of them were really boring. They were really boring. So you're telling the stories that matter to you. And obviously, in your case, you are your family tells the story of not enormously great behavior because you like that. And my family, too, we do that, too. But, of course, we were 
my father's family were East Texans, so there's a lot of guns involved. Oh, you know, like the time that Weaver Dial got shot dead in the streets of Trinity. He'd been bullying somebody uh, after he'd stolen his Christmas whiskey. He was, he was awful and, you know, somebody he'd been bullying shot him, but he comes down and kind of like little sort of family legend. So my grandfather used to tell, it was, he was his favorite cousin. He used to tell the story all the time about Weaver Dial getting shot down in the streets of Trinity, Texas, but he told everybody a different story. <laughs> We're getting together trying to figure this out. And we realized that we actually do not know. Did he get shot down in Trinity or was it Groveton? You know, was he shot in the back or was he shot in the front? And he kept on coming. Weaver Dial kept on coming. I've heard both. I don't know. <laughs> did, the, did the people of whatever it was, Trinity or Groveton, actually cheer and then put the guy on the train? I don't know. Might have happened. Maybe not. So, anyway, there was a Weaver Dial and he did get shot down. I don't know really the circumstances. Oral, oral history is, is an interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, and our, our Icelandic you know, to circle back to Snorri, he's living at, at this time of transition between right. mm-hmm. the oral culture and written culture in, in it's happening throughout Europe, but it's happening at that particular moment in Iceland. It's happened in England, you know, a hundred years earlier, it's um, 12th century. So here we are in the 13th century in Iceland and, and this transition is happening. <laughs> and so and he's, he's in the middle of it, not just as a poet and a historian, but in his work as a, as a law speaker in the Althing. He is he is speaking out the law so that the people who don't read can hear it. This is but the law has been written down. It's this transition, and it's dangerous to assume that every single thing that gets transmitted by oral culture is wrong, and it's dangerous to assume that everything that gets transmitted by oral culture is accurate. Right. It's yeah. It's uh, yeah. You can get into very big arguments about it. Oh, Snorri. Many people are descended from Snorri Sturluson because, uh, as I say, he had lots of children, most of them not actually legitimate. I'm not. He's one of my cousins. I thought I'd just tell you in case you were interested. I can look it up and see if if he's one of your cousins. The the answer will be yes, he is, but how how distant I do not know. I'll be pretty darn distant because we're mostly German and Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a pretty far walking all over the place you're gonna to have to cut a bunch of that out no i don't think i will i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it on in um because yeah it's just that was i can't i think it makes sense with snorri he was all over the board so were we and he genealogy he was interested in it so there you go uh so the next time that y'all hear from us we are going to go back to england although it's really at about the same time because we've just been in 1241 in iceland 1242, the next year we're going to England when William de Morisco is executed for various crimes, among them piracy and trying to have Henry III killed. So that sounds like... <laughs> I don't know. Oh gosh, did I put this on the list? Because I don't remember any of that, anything about yeah, this. Yeah, I don't remember this at all. I think you must have put this on. After that, we seem to go into the realm of saffron. But okay, at any rate, next, <laughs> next, next time it's 1242. Well... So here we are talking about Snorri's assassination and why on earth this doesn't exist as a screenplay that has been picked up. <sighs> I'm so frustrated. Yeah, we have been running into a lot of things that ought to be historical fiction. It's like the his- historical fiction kind of ends up lighting on certain things and then completely ignoring others. Very odd. Okay, this has been 
at any rate, true crime medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. And now we don't need 70 people to kill somebody in their basement. Uh, we can be found on Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcast and all the places where the podcasts hang out. And you can find us at truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word, where you can find links to the podcast and show notes and transcriptions. And you can reach us through there. You can leave comments. We love it when you leave comments and uh, tell us about medieval uh, crimes that we should pay attention to or explain to us when we were wrong. Uh, so that we can let you know that there were two scholars named what is this Eleanor Searle Eleanor Searle there were there was a scholar and a person who studied some music and married well they are two different people but one of them has a room of dedicated them to the middle university at a university and one of them has a fellowship dedicated to them at a university and they are not the same person so now we know that thank you because it was confusing. It was cute, confusing. I can't remember if there's anything else I'm supposed to say. Blanca didn't show up today, did she? Yeah, she was really quiet, actually. That's surprising. Yeah, and she, it is surprising because she laid an egg and has been screaming lately because apparently it's like spring and it's some kind of time when as a cockatoo, you're supposed to be even more obnoxious than usual, which is, and believe me, um, the level of obnox obnoxious behavior with cockatoos, that's a fairly high bar. I'm just saying, you know. So. Sometimes she has to have something to say about every other sentence. Yes, we, we uh, several of the podcasts have outtakes of us trying to deal with Blanca, but she was quiet today. At any rate, so that was Iceland, and uh, now we're back in the 21st century. Yes, poets should not <laughs> fancy themselves politicians. Mm, apparently not, because we have we have some evidence that you know it's sort of deathly. Mm -hmm. That's all for us. Bye. Bye. Bye.